Okay, hello, I'm here with Jamie Suskind. Jamie is a barrister at the moment, but you also went to Harvard to do, what, what, what exactly were you doing there? So I had a fellowship at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society, which is where I wrote this book. Yes, and what I want to talk about today is Jamie's book, uh, Future Politics. And it's, it's a very interesting angle to look at how technology is changing um, politics and, and what politicians need to be aware of, how politics will work in the future. Mm. Um, I, I think there isn't really a lot in the tech world that talks about politics, I think, and it's such a vital element where technology companies are becoming more powerful, the, the lobbying power of companies like Google and Facebook. And and the increasing power they have to influence us. So I would love to hear more about what you see um, as the biggest, well, how, how technology is influencing politics yes. and what it means for, for politics in the future. Yes, well, I mean, I should say, you know, I did my, my fellowship at Harvard in 2016, 2017, and that actually marked a bit of a turning point in the way that people thought about and wrote about these issues. Um, there's a long bibliography in here and, and half of it is texts that were written well in advance of 2016. Mm. And there's a lot of tech utopia there. Um, and half of them, you know, texts from after Trump and Brexit, when a lot of people sat up and thought, oh my goodness, perhaps these systems are malign forces in society and aren't, and aren't things that we should be cheering on. And a lot of politicians were keen to distance themselves from Silicon Valley, albeit that that is... That's still a very close relationship, at, mm. least, at least in America. Um, I, I, I'm not a, I, I'm not a sort of uh, vociferous critic of the tech world in the way that some polemicists are, but I do believe that digital technology has certain qualities that make it of interest to people who are interested in politics. Mm. And I think when you when you look at this issue, it's important not just to think about politics as we have traditionally imagined it. Um, parliaments, the executive, the civil service, maybe the judiciary, the kind of traditional organs of political life, mm. because actually the consequences of digital technology on the way that we live are much more diffuse and much more dispersed, but could still easily be categorised as problems of freedom or problems of justice mm. or problems of democracy, mm. um, even if they aren't immediately filtered through the prism of parliamentary democracy. Um, so you mentioned, for instance, lobbying just then, and you know, it's not new to say that people have worried about the power of large corporations. We've been doing that for a hundred years more, mm. particularly in the US. Uh, corporations have always been seen as wielding a kind of strange, undemocratic power. Mm. Firstly, because they can pay politicians to, uh, let me rephrase, through campaign finance and lobbying, they can encourage politicians to take certain courses of action. Mm. Um, secondly, because they have a lot of direct control over their own workers, the quality of life that people have enjoyed historically has been determined more by whether they've got a beneficial employer than mm. by the laws of the land. Thirdly, because in a globalised world, they can ask for things from the government and credibly threaten to leave the jurisdiction if they don't get them, mm. uh, leading to a kind of regulatory arbitrage and race to the bottom. At least mm. that's the theory um, across different countries. All of that applies to the tech world, but th there's more as well, because I think the digital technology actually 
directly affects things that are of interest to students of politics and to citizens rather than just consumers. So, uh, for instance, it used to be that we thought that the uh, the main mechanism of distribution in society was the market with the state intervening. But now overlaid on both, we have a lot of influence from algorithms, which kind of are embedded in both systems. But, you know, your access to things of social value, a job, credit, uh, insurance, you know, health insurance in the US, for instance, these things are heavily influenced by code, by, by algorithms. And in a sense, the state might not even be getting involved in that. But whether you have access to those things could be determined of whether you have a good life or a bad life, mm. you know, a prosperous life or a poor life, mm. a meaningful life or, a, or, or a, a meaningless one. And I see that as a first order political problem. Hugely. That is something that affects the community as a whole. Mm. Um, or to take another example, the example of freedom, the, uh, there are really interesting questions being raised by new technologies about what should and shouldn't be permitted when you're using them. So for instance, with virtual reality systems, which I think are about to explode in importance, um, even if they haven't yet, there are all kinds of things that you could or might want to do on a virtual reality system that would be unlawful to do in real life. That's fairly obvious when you think about it. So if you had a sort of shoot 'em up game, where you're killing people, that's obviously not something you can do in real life. But there are interesting moral questions about what you should and shouldn't be able to do using those systems. So, um, should you be able to participate in a kind of uh, a war, a war game? The answer is probably yes. I think people don't really mind that, even if it's brutal and bloody. But should you be able to do, uh, for instance, sexual activity? And I think there's going to be a very large virtual reality porn industry. Mm. Should be able to do sexual activity that would be unlawful if it was being done in real life. Mm. Um, you know, don't ask why people would want to do it, but whether it's sex with an animal or sex with uh, someone who looks very young. Mm. And then there are kind of more morally uh, questionable or grey areas like, should you be able to render an avatar of your next door neighbour and have sex in virtual reality with that person, mm. um, or should that somehow be prohibited and why? What mm. would the legal basis of that be? I raise these issues to illustrate a broader point, which is that technologies encode values, mm. and that's true not just of a virtual reality system, but say of a self-driving car, and this is a very tired example, but one of people often say is the trolley problem, you mm. know, it's driving along the road, and there's a group of nuns standing there and then there's a baby and it has to decide which, which to kill, which did it kill. And uh, my fundamental answer to this stuff is people are going to have reasonable disagreements about those questions. Absolutely. But they're political questions. Mm. I'm not convinced they're matters of individual conscience. Although the lib So the liberal answer, I think, would be to say, well, to the, to the greatest extent possible, I should be able to do what I want with my virtual reality system. And this is where most technical companies stand at the moment. It, in yes, the, yeah. exactly. And, you know, I should be able to customise my self-driving car so that it's, it's consonant with my values. That's a very liberal, liberal way of looking at it. And, it, you know, you, you might go even further in a kind of libertarian way and say, as long as it doesn't, you know, with the VR example, as long as it doesn't harm anyone, you should be allowed to do these repulsive things mm. um, or things that society would consider repulsive if they were done in 
uh, in actuality. I, I mean, I have a slightly different view, which is that I think these are problems that should be sort of resolved collectively. I think there should be a set of principles that society itself has come together and decided upon. Mm -hmm. And this is based on an, a very democratic and republican instinct, small r republican instinct that I have, which is when society has to decide on matters of moral importance, it should come together and deliberate on them and see if it can reach a view that's always, in my view, likely to be better than every individual going their own way. But that remains quite an unpopular view, and it's certainly a very anti-capitalist view in the sense that what, 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 when you're marketing a technology, what you really want to be able to say to people is you can make this do whatever you want it to do, you as an individual. And this, to me, is like a great example of where the market values that are embedded in technology perhaps conflict with the public uh, importance that they now have. Mm -hmm. So we've looked at, at questions of justice, we've looked at questions of liberty, and then if you look at questions like democracy, um, you get the same thing again. We've already seen the first generation of problems caused by social media. I should say, for regards to the problems, obviously the internet has enabled certain forms of political communication which are vastly beneficial. Mm -hmm. And you know, movements like the Occupy Movement or the Arab Spring regardless of what eventually happens to them, wouldn't have been possible without um, de democratic, uh, without digital revolution. Likewise, the revolutions that have taken place between, in the relationship between the individual and the state with things like e-consultations and e-petitions, mm -hmm. um, individuals and political parties, most political advertising, uh, most political organising is now done using digital means. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we've seen that social media can affect one of the most fundamental aspects of democracy, which is deliberation, the way we talk to each other. Mm. And because democracy isn't just about voting, we've seen that people can become polarised because uh, through their own personal choices, but also through algorithms making choices for them, they are just fed information which tends to agree with and reinforce their worldview. Mm. Um, we've seen people become more entrenched in those views because the more time you spend around people and information that agree with you, the more deeply you come to hold those views. We've seen the problems of the spread of fake news mm -hmm. um, and misinformation. And stepping back, to return to my earlier theme, in a sense it's not necessarily surprising that this has happened because these social media platforms have not been developed according to the principles of the forum or the pub or, or, or healthy public debate. If that was so, then they would funnel information towards you, which was balanced and fair and rigorously checked and um, otherwise engineered to make you a better citizen. But instead, you're more likely to receive stuff that is titillating, that is scintillating, scandalous. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if it's wrong or if it's biased or partial, because you, as with your consumer hat on, rather than a citizen hat, with your consumer hat on, that's what you want. Mm. It's what we all want. And so we shouldn't be surprised that when you develop these systems according to the logic of the market rather than the logic of the forum, that they don't serve the common good or the public good, they serve the private good. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I've just given that entire explanation without any reference to parliaments or legislatures or laws because you know this is where a lot of the politics is happening now and at the same time I think it is probably time for the old school institutions to reassert themselves in, in a way that enables these technologies to develop.
more in line with the public good. And do, do you feel that this is happening at the moment? I, I feel that at least in, in Europe there seems to be some movement to, to, to create better awareness um, in other places. Yes. In China, for example, I, I think that the, the state has taken hold of, of some of this technology and is using it very effectively, but not necessarily in the way that we would want to see. In, in, in Western society, yeah. um, in the US you have have it somewhere in between, I feel, mm. where tech companies are hugely powerful and, and influencing politics. Um, so if you are interested in politics, if you're a politician, what do you see as some of the key takeaways or what would you like to see happen in the future? Well, I think you rightly identified that there are basically three big models in the world just now. Um, there's the Chinese model where there is a very, very close relationship between the commercial interests of tech companies and the political interests of the state. Yeah. Um, then you have the United States where there is a, still a pretty close relationship between tech companies and the state, but one which is sometimes adversarial, but basically where the regulatory system is designed for maximum economic liberty. Yeah. Uh, and the Americans would say, well, that's why Europe has never had its Netflix or its Twitter or its Facebook, because we have that freedom here to innovate. And then there is the European model, which seeks to protect individuals in a way that the American one doesn't. Um, things like the GDPR, it's a flawed law, but you're definitely better protected in terms of your data here in Europe than you are in the United States. Yeah. But you are seeing some movement in the US, you know, places like California passing data privacy laws. Um, but I still think we're a wee way away from it. Mm. Uh, you know, there's only a couple of the Democratic presidential candidates who are seriously talking about taking action on tech regulation. And it's far from clear that they're the ones who will win. Mm. So Europe's leading the way on regulation. America is more cautious and China, I don't know if you can call what's happening in China regulation, but there is a much closer alignment there. Yeah. Um, my own view is that this is the fund, which model we choose is the fundamental political question of our time. Mm. In the 20th century, the great political question was to what extent should uh, matters be left to the market and to civil society and to what extent should the state intervene in, mm. in those things and that was the big issue that divided left from right in the western hemisphere from the eastern in our time i think the big question is to what extent should our lives be governed by powerful digital systems and mm. on what terms and we are i think at the foothills of formulating the ideologies that will come to rival each other in that area whether it's digital socialism, digital liberalism, digital republicanism, um, the digital Chinese model, these things are all under-theorized, although they are kind of emerging in practice. Mm. Uh, you know, I have my own prejudices. I happen to think that the European system is on the right track, but uh, this is going to be an area of massive political confrontation in the next mm. half century. Fascinating. So, any messages to politicians? <laughs> well, look, I, I, I love that actually a former prime minister said 
that, that this is a, a groundbreaking book. So ho hopefully there's some, some weight behind all of this. So I mean, my message to politicians is read the book. <laughs> yeah, but uh, you don't need to be a computer scientist or a software engineer to understand the technological changes that are taking place in society. But you do need to have read a bit about them mm -hmm. and understand them at a kind of social level. Mm -hmm. But once you can, I think all of us can participate in a conversation about what the best way forward is. Uh, at the same time, don't just read books that are written in the kind of Silicon Valley hype um, mode. Mm -hmm. Read critical books as well, because this stuff isn't just about the next unicorn, it's about the way we live together, yeah. which is much more fundamental. Couldn't agree more. Thank you very much, Great. Jamie. Thank you so Cheers. much.